got to get to church on time. That early morning communion service, it's so important. Besides, look at that driver. He's all over the road. I hate people like that. Look out. He cut me off. Can you believe it? He cut me off. You brainless idiot. No, I don't think he heard me. See his bumper sticker? Guess he's not going to heaven. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Something's bothering me about that friend at church. He seems upset at me. Oh, well, I'll try to talk to him after the communion service. No rush. There's too much going on in our lives. Our dear neighbor, my enemy, is taking me to court over the property line. Is that ridiculous or what? I'll be sure to give him the cold shoulder when we arrive at the courthouse. He can't do that to me. Our subject today is who is a murderer? Warren Wearsby, used to be pastor at a church in Chicago, writes, I have read that one out of every 35 deaths in Chicago is a murder, and that most of these murders are crimes of passion caused by anger among friends or relatives. Jesus did not say that anger leads to murder. He said that anger is murder. We're going to look at just six verses, those verses that were just read to you. But two things to note before we get into those verses. First, most of you would probably know, and the Jewish audience would know, as Christ spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sixth Commandment said that thou shalt not murder. You shall not murder. The physical act of taking a human life, an innocent life, would be carried out if the person was convicted with the death penalty. The second thing we need to know is most of the people who heard Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount did not speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. After they came back from the captivity many years before, that was the language that they used. So because of that, they had to rely on teachers, Pharisees, teachers of the law, all of whom would teach them what the scriptures said. Let's look at these verses, and I'm just going to pair them. Two verses apiece for the six verses. Let's start with verses 21 and 22. If you have your Bibles, you can take a look. Verses 21 and 22 speak to those with anger. Us. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. The Lord Jesus Christ, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, was drawing a distinction between what they had been taught about the law and its full meaning. The Lord Jesus is referring here to the teaching of the rabbis of the past. 
they limited the Sixth Commandment to the physical act of murder. Natural. You murder, you're arrested, you punish by death. However, it was broader than that. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to these people at the time. The New Living Study Bible says the expression refers to the traditional interpretation of the teachers of religious law and Pharisees. Though their traditions, get this, prohibited murder, they did not prohibit hatred. The surpassing righteousness of Jesus demands reconciliation, and we'll see that. Merely refraining from committing murder is not sufficient. The Pharisees and the Sadducees could always say, I never murdered anyone. I've hated a lot of people, but I've never murdered anyone. I tell you the truth, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The law against murder was not limited to the act of killing, but included the person's heart and mind attitude. Again, Wearsby speaks of the meaning of the word anger, and this really gets to you. Jesus talked about an unholy anger, he writes. The word he used in Matthew 5.22 means a settled anger, malice that is nursed inwardly. Deep. Another commentator talks about all who could be called brother. The word brother includes also a neighbor, perhaps a relative, anyone whom we may be associated with. I knew someone in a church that I went to years ago, two sisters, and they never spoke because of something that happened a long time ago, and each one nursed the anger in them, and would not reconcile. Sad. External and internal murder disregarded the value that God sets on human beings. That's what we don't realize. That, that fool, that jerk, that idiot, that person is valued by God. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, James writes, and with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Amazing. Christ identified anger as murder that was extremely dangerous and deserving of punishment. It's the cancer of the mind. Six verses to tell us this. Now, what we saw in verse 22 is several stages of anger that we go through. And again, we're still talking about us. First, the person holds anger against someone. Anyone who is angry with his brother. Anyone who is angry with his brother. Here, that's where it is. No one knows. The Amplified Bible has the first phrases, but I say to you that everyone who continues to be angry with his brother or harbors malice against him. We do it. Here, at work, in our neighborhood, among our relatives, and among our friends. 
That's the first step, having the anger in your mind. The second step is the person devalues the one he is angry with by trashing his or her intelligence. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka. Now, Raka is an untranslatable epithet that was used back in the time. The best we know about it can be reflected in what the Amplified translates this passage as. Whoever speaks contemptuously and insultingly to his brother, Raka, you empty-headed idiot. Stage one, in the mind. Stage two, insert, insulting the person's intelligence. Third, the person questions his or her relationship to God. Anyone who says, you fool. Now, Young's literal Bible translates the phrase, whoever may say, rebel. How do the two to go together? Well, the word is mora, from which we get moron. Mora, probably from Mara, to rebel, a rebel against God, apostate from all good. If you read the Old Testament, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is a malicious censoring and condemning of him as abandoned of God, Matthew Henry writes. If the noose isn't tight enough, here's a shocker. One day, everyone will have to stand before God and explain his or her words. Where did you get that? Matthew 12, 36 and 37. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, we're very proud of our digital recording techniques. You can listen on the phone and it sounds better than a CD. Don't you think God could record everything that's been said? So our first emphasis in the first two verses, 21 and 22, is that we need to watch our anger. It moves to stages, to verbal abuse, and then to questioning a person's relationship to God himself. But there's more. Next two verses, 23 and 24, speaks to us about someone with something against us. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. The Jewish people knew that the attitude and action were more important to God than worship. Say that again. The Jewish people knew that attitude and action were more important to God than worship. Listen to Hosea 6.6. 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So they kind of knew that going in. Christ is saying now, while you're worshiping, now, at the time, the way they did it is through sacrifices offered in Jerusalem at the temple. While you're worshiping, if it comes to mind that someone has something against you, you must immediately stop what you're doing. 
not my words, the Lord's. One commentator describes the moment when a person offering a sacrifice remembers that someone has something against him or her. Listen to this. It transports us to the moment when the Israelite, having brought his sacrifice to the court of the Israelites, awaited the instant when the priest would approach to receive it at his hands. He waits with his gift at the rails which separate the place where he stands from the court of the priests into which his offering will be presently taken, there to be slain by the priest and by him presented upon the altar of sacrifice. It is at this solemn moment when about to cast himself upon divine mercy and seek in his offering a seal of divine forgiveness that the offerer is supposed all at once to remember that some brother is just a just cause of complaint against him and through breach of his commandment in one or other of the ways just indicated. What then is he to say, as soon as I have offered this, if I will straight to my brother and make it up with him. No, but before another step is taken, even before the offering is presented, this reconciliation is to be sought though the gift have to be left unoffered before the altar. What are the time and effort of stopping the sacrifice and going to seek the one who had something against him? Should be easy, right? The interruption was significant. The original audience was in Galilee, in the north, days away from the temple in Jerusalem. They had to leave their gift on the altar and travel several days to get to Galilee, to talk to the person and say, I am so sorry, let's fix this. How does the Lord feel about the interruption? Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount. He was a great British preacher from years ago. And he said, you know, the Lord's willing to be kept waiting in a situation like this. He's willing to be kept waiting while we go and settle the matter with someone who has wronged us. It appears as if it's something in our mind, but we may have caused it somehow. But the anger in this someone has to be settled. Why? Because anger is the cancer of the mind. Now, we might argue, let her come to us. I mean, probably she was more responsible than we were. Barnes writes, he was not to wait until the offended brother or sister should come to him. He was to go and seek him or her out and be reconciled. So the worship of God will not be acceptable, however well performed externally, until we are at peace with those we have injured. Strong words. Again, because of the danger of anger and anger being so close to verbal assault and then murder itself. I read an interesting story that fits here. At a communion service in the South Pacific Islands, a man kneeling at the altar to receive the emblem suddenly got up and moved to the back of the auditorium with an agitated expression. Later, he rejoined the communicants and participated in the sacrament. When asked following the service about his action, he revealed that he had seen the man 
kneeling at the other end of the altar who had killed his father. He was so angry in his spirit that he could not partake of the emblems until God enabled him to experience a forgiving spirit. Just so, Jesus elevates reconciliation with one's brother to a greater importance than religious rites. And the ministry of reconciliation was ultimately expressed by the master who, while we were enemies, died for us. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Quickly on, the last section, verses 25 and 26. This speaks about the anger of an adversary, someone who doesn't like us. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The Lord tells us when we are in an adversarial situation, deal with the matter quickly. One commentator writes, this is still an illustration of the sixth commandment. To be in hostility, to go to law, to be litigious is a violation always as on one side or the other of the law requiring us to love our neighbor and our savior regards it as a violation of the sixth commandment. But it's my adversary. It doesn't matter. While you are in the way with him, says he, that is while you are going to the court before the trial has taken place, it is your duty if possible, to come to an agreement. Anger. But it's an enemy. They don't like me anyway. Go and settle. And different translations have this word, settle with the adversary. But the New American Standard has it like the old King James, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way. Make friends with your opponent at law. I like that. But it's my enemy. We should befriend this adversary taking us to court. That is another way of dealing with anger on his or her part, on our brother's part, sister's part, or on our part. We have to turn adversaries into friends because of what will happen. The adversary will not be kind. It is not wise to have, it is wise not to have enemies. One should make peace as soon as possible because enemies are capable of doing great damage. So you have anger in yourself in a brother or sister in Christ, or our adversaries, our enemies. Two thoughts on our message this morning. Some of you may be saying, I don't have the strength to control my anger. I just don't. I'm a hothead. I can't stop thinking angry thoughts, much less dealing with someone who's angry at me, be it a friend or an enemy. But here's the answer. God is showing you that you can't live up to his holy standards. If you don't know that, that ought to be where you start. 
Oh, I can do that. I mean, I've been a Christian for years. You'll fail at this, and you'll fail at so many other things. Is God's standard is higher than ours. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And secondly, we as believers died with Christ and we have been freed from sin. It's incredible to realize that we died with Christ. Yeah, the, the flesh still pulls us the wrong way. But we don't have to obey it anymore. We're slaves to God, not to the sin. But now that you have been set free from sin, Paul writes in Romans, and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Others may be saying, what good is controlling my anger in the face of a hostile world? There are crazy people out there. So many don't care about God. They certainly don't like me. Here's the reason for this and other Christian behavior. The Lord calls us to live in a countercultural manner in the world. Dick mentioned that the other week, and it's so true. We are to be countercultural. Romans 12:2 says, "Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world." And as Christians, we find we are doing it upside down. People don't expect us to do this. Someone is angry at me, I'm angry back. Someone hits me, I'm going to hit them back. But that's not the countercultural way. That's not the Christian way. That's not God's way. Our behavior will seem upside down to those outside of Christ. And some will ask, why do you live like this? Therein lies our witness opportunity. Some of you may say, I can't talk to anybody about the Lord. I, I mean, I can barely give them something to read. I, I, I'll invite them to church maybe, but I, I just can't do that. Try practicing the truth, the pattern of anger alone, and people's mouths will drop open. On September 14th, a little more than a, year, um, a month ago, I should say, I had a stroke. 5.45 in the afternoon. I remember trying to speak, and I was messing up the words. Jess tells me that my right arm was not moving properly. I was taken to the hospital, and miraculously, by God's grace, I was healed. That's not a bragging thing. It's an all-praise-to-God thing. I want to say two things about that. Number one, thank each of you for your prayers for us at that time and thereafter. It meant more than we can say. I love the prayer chain. Thank you. And second... And finally, I'd like to mention, we have seen a lot of folks who have passed away. Uh, Peter mentioned those who are mourning, and we're all mourning in addition to the people involved. Life can change so quickly. 
it's deadly serious. If you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, now is the accepted time. Because you have no guarantee of the next minute in your life. You trying to scare me? Yeah. Yeah. I would invite you, as we pray and close, to ask God to come into your life. Repent of your sins. Believe that he died on the cross for you, in addition to so many others. And accept him into your life. And then start reading his word. Talk to Pastor Dick. Talk to one of the elders. And find out how to go. You have a new career path in following the Lord. Let's close our time in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the messages we've already heard. We look forward to the ones to come. We pray, Father, that you would help us to listen and to learn for what you have taught us in this Sermon on the Mount. And for today, for us as Christians, Father, as we want to yell out the window in the car, as we want to judge someone so quickly from what their bumper sticker says, as we turn on people, as we ratchet up anchor from the mind to the mouth to action, oh, Father, it's deadly serious, even in terms of worship. May we take time to think carefully about anyone whom we may have offended and hurt and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. And Father, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ, Lord, you can come so quickly and they have no more chance. Father, we pray that they might think seriously of accepting Jesus Christ, repenting, accepting the fact that Jesus Christ did it all and will do it all for the future. Continue to bless us as we finish up this service. May we honor you in everything we do. In Jesus' name.